Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast bringing you live constitutional conversations featuring leading scholars, historians, journalists, and public officials hosted here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. Today's episode was recorded on Constitution Day, September 17th, 2018, a day-long celebration of the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution held every year here at the Constitution Center. That afternoon, we were joined by Judge Jeffrey Sutton of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit to discuss his new book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. Judge Sutton joined NCC President and CEO Jeffrey Rosen to shed light on the importance of state courts and state constitutions in protecting liberty. Here's Jeff to get us started. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Constitution Day! It is, or or as Judge Sutton will teach us to say in the future, happy Constitutions Day, because he's going to tell us about the importance of state constitutions and how they can transform our understanding of federal constitutional law. I'm so excited to introduce him to you in just a moment, but I have to say what a thrilling Constitution Day this has been here at the NCC. We have had 4,600 school kids in the building. And in addition, we launched online our constitutional exchanges in collaboration with the New York Times Discovery Network. We united about 600 students across America bringing classrooms in Ohio and Kentucky, in California and Maryland, together using the Zoom virtual exchange to discuss the meaning of the First Amendment and using the interactive Constitution. It was so exciting, and it's such a model for bringing this incredible online tool, the interactive Constitution, to students across the country and listening and watching them engage in civil dialogue about the basic meaning of the First Amendment was thrilling. Or ladies and gentlemen, I'm so honored and excited to share with you uh, this pathbreaking book by one of our most distinguished and respected federal judges. It is rare that a book transforms the way we think about constitutional interpretation, and even rarer that it does so in a way that is so nonpartisan, multipartisan, so uh, Uh, such an unfamiliar lens that uh, both sides, all sides, can embrace it uh, as a way to think about constitutional law. Uh, Judge Sutton, uh, who sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, is one of the most distinguished and respected judges in the country. And I have to do something which uh, I don't usually do during the intros, but just to read some of the blurbs on this book so you'll get a sense of how respected he is by scholars and judges from all sides. Lawrence Tribe says, Jeffrey Sutton, one of America's most distinguished uh, judges, writes with a grace and intelligence equaled by only a handful of our greatest judges. Um, Judge uh, Randy Holland say he presents a masterful description of how the US Constitution created a representative democracy with distinct roles. And Abby Gluck from Yale calls it a brilliant and long overdue effort to restore the salience of state constitutional law and advocate for its independence. Please join me in welcoming Judge Jeffrey Sutton. (laughs) 
it is indeed a pathbreaking book. Let's begin by telling the audience, why did you decide to write it? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for inviting me, Jeff. Thank you for coming. Happy 51 Constitutions Day. I'm, I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here. And, and, and Jeff, thank you for your work at the center in terms of educating us about the Constitution. I, I got here at noon. I couldn't believe how loud it was. I just <laughs> blown away. I, I, used, I was a seventh grade teacher at one point in my life, so it brought me back. And I, I thought to myself, I'm very happy to be a judge right now. <laughs> I just left and I went and got some coffee. Uh, so so why, why did I write the book? Um, well, it, it reminds me of a story. I was, I was coming at a church a couple months ago and a doctor friend of mine stopped me and said, oh, Jeff, I heard you wrote a book. That's really exciting. Um, is it an autobiography? And I said, well, no, not exactly. And he said, well, is it a mystery? And I said, no, it's not a mystery. And he said, well, well Jeff, what's it about? And I said, well, state constitutions. Long, awkward pause, and then the doctor said, are you sure it's not a mystery? Uh, <laughs> and uh, the reality is there is some autobiography in the book. Um, one, uh, there's lots of books about American constitutional law out there, but they all share this trait. They focus on the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, that's understandable. Some of our great Con law stories come from the U.S. Supreme Court, Brown versus Board of Education being a great example, but I thought it might be nice to supplement those stories with some stories where the state courts and state constitutions played a big role as well. A second theme of those books is they all have a very similar narrative. Um, it's usually state as villain, U.S. Supreme Court as hero, and again, there's an awful lot to support that narrative. Jim Crow leading to Brown versus Board of Education, again, being the best example. But I thought it might be interesting to tell some stories in which the state courts were actually the heroes, or at least where it was complicated in terms of who did a better job, the state or the federal courts. So those were really, I think, two of the key things. Um, I, I would say the only other thing, which maybe we'll turn to later, is you know, I'm a federal judge. I don't get state constitutional law issues. So that seems strange. That should lead to some cognitive dissonance as to why I would spend all this time doing this. Um, I think one of the things motivating me is I'm very anxious about the direction and path of the federal courts and particularly the US Supreme Court. And I don't blame them, I actually blame us. Um, we Americans prize our judicially enforceable rights. I think that's appropriate, that's fair. But we've all come to look to the U.S. Supreme Court as the sole and exclusive definer of those rights. That works out really well when they rule our way. It's very frustrating when they don't rule our way. And as we have seen with each of these confirmation fights um, and battles, the stakes just seem to get higher and higher um, for understandable reasons, right? I mean, these are winner-take-all fights, and you want to be on the winning rather than the losing side of these fights. Um, I think it's probably a little dreamy and idealistic to think that we can get a detente at the US Supreme Court, which is to say to back off nationalizing so many rights when the stakes are so high. But if that possibility has any realism to it at all, it will be only because the state courts using state constitutions fill that gap. And so that's one of the things that's really driving me. Um, you know, I'm fine with the U.S. Supreme Court. Obviously, I'm an intermediate junior varsity federal judge. I, I'm on TV. I respect you. I like the U.S. Supreme Court. I, I follow your rulings, um, and I'm happy to follow your rulings. But I, 
I don't think it's a great idea for us as Americans to think only of the US Supreme Court as the definer of our rights. There's a Pennsylvania Constitution, there's an Ohio Constitution. All of these liberties are found there. In fact, there's not a single individual right in the first eight of the Bill of Rights uh, that was innovated by the framers. Every single one of them comes from the state constitutions, which were, of course, written before Constitution Day, 1787. All right, it's 1776 to 1787 is the greatest era of Constitution writing in this country, indeed, in the world. And all of these great federal guarantees come from those state constitutions. And I'd like to remind people of that. And I'd like for us to think a little bit more of the state courts as another tier, another way of protecting those rights, uh, perhaps to delay some of the winner-take-all battles, perhaps to inform the winner-take-all battles, and perhaps occasionally to have the US Supreme Court let these battles take place primarily in the states. Um, it's hard to generalize which rights. I'm pretty sure we would disagree about that in this room, about which ones to nationalize and which ones not to. The one thing I'm confident we would not disagree about is the greatest virtue of federalism. Um, Justice Brandeis had this wonderful saying, and I, I, I'm gonna guess that all 4,000 and however many people that went through this center today would agree with this insight about federalism, that using the states as laboratories of democracy, as policy-making laboratories, is a wonderful virtue of federalism. Always a good idea if you've gotta test run something, to test run it in one state, rather than as an experiment for all 320 million people at once. I'm pretty confident we all agree with that insight of Brandeis's. Now what Brandeis was referring to was policy making as done by state legislatures. What I'm arguing in the book is to extend the Brandeis metaphor, the Brandeis idea, to laboratories of constitutional interpretation. We have 51 legislatures, we also have 51 courts, and we have 51 constitutions. Why wouldn't it be a good idea with new, novel, innovative rights litigation to test run it in the state courts first, see how it works out, see if one idea really works out to be superior to the others, and then, and only then, nationalize the right? Um, but I, I really think the insight that Brandeis had when it came to policy making applies with equal force to constitutional interpretation. And given where we are in this country today, it may be even more important. You make such a powerful point that uh, returning to Brandeis's insight would take the stakes off of the Supreme Court. And you also note that it was William Brennan, the liberal justice in the 1980s, who called for an increased attention to state constitutions at a time when the court was turning more conservative. And now, once again, liberals are rediscovering the virtues of state constitutions as the court looks to be conservative for years to come. Can you give us examples of uh, one right for liberals and one right for conservatives that might be ventilated and well-defined at the state rather than the federal level? Yeah, so um, this is either the best or worst part of the book. Um, I'll let you be the judge. Uh, it's completely neutral. Um, it's written for progressives, conservatives, originalists, living constitutionalists, and so forgive me, it's, it's not for any one group or any one stripe. 
proof that what I'm talking about is neutral is partly suggested by what Jeff said. Uh, one of the primary advocates for state constitutionalism was Justice Brennan, perceived as you know, arguably the greatest progressive justice in the last 70 years. And he uh, wrote a landmark article in 1977 in the Harvard Law Review advocating every single thing I'm advocating in this book. I just took more time to do it, but it's the same thing. Justice Scalia, arguably the greatest conservative jurist of the last 70 years, in his last majority opinion for the court, a case called Kansas versus Carr, so very last majority opinion, he makes the exact same point, saying states are free to experiment with their own constitutions in the aftermath of US Supreme Court decisions and often do. When Justice Brennan and Justice Scalia agree about something, that is the definition of truth. I mean, the, the, the Venn diagrams do not overlap a lot with the two of them. So that's usually an insight worth paying attention to. Now, to be more concrete about this, I'll, I'll mention one chapter in the book, which would, I'll call a more progressive liberal, and then I'll give an example of a conservative. So a more progressive one would be the US Supreme Court in a decision in 1973, um, this is March of 1973. Uh, you might be interested to know, two months after Roe was decided. So this was a US Supreme Court that wasn't, you would say, as liberal as the Warren Court. But in view of the Roe decision, obviously a court willing to take a stand on national rights um, without you know, uh, you know, it being a clear textual path to get there, I guess is the way I'll put it. So Roe comes out in January of 1973. And in March of 1973, in a case called Rodriguez, where the stakes are immensely high. The question was whether there's a 14th Amendment right to equal funding between and among public school districts. The case came from San Antonio, Texas. There were some very rich school districts, um, public schools in San Antonio, some very poor ones. The, um, the differential um, in the rich ones was almost entirely white students. The poorer ones were almost entirely Hispanic, African-American. Uh, the stakes of this case, in my view, um, at least in terms of what's going on on the ground, in terms of opportunity for kids, were as, as high as Brown versus Board of Education. All right, Brown gets rid of segregation based on race, but let's face it, one of the things that was very important about Brown was giving everybody an equal start in life when it came to their public education. And that's as an American ideal as there is. So Rodriguez, Really, the, the stakes are the same. It's not about race-based discrimination anymore, although there's, it has a race correlation. It's about wealth-based discrimination and whether poor children ought to have the same start in life as wealthier children. And the court, in a very close decision, 5-4 rejects the claim. Justice Marshall, in dissent, writes an anguished dissent because he realized how high the stakes were. He was the advocate who won Brown, and here he is realizing if we don't get Rodriguez right, everything we hoped would happen in terms of an equal opportunity for poor African-American, Hispanic, other minority children arguably could be lost. Justice Powell, really, he occupied Justice Kennedy's seat. He was one of the key moderates of the court, said, this is just not for the Supreme Court to do. Uh, we can't be a school board for the whole country. We realize the stakes are high, but they rejected the claim. That was in 1973. In the decades since, two-thirds of the state courts in this country have recognized a state, a state constitutional right to some form of equal or minimum adequate funding 
for the kids in their, their state. So, you know, that's a story where, if, from a progressive perspective, the heroes are the state courts and the state constitutions. I'm not willing to say the U.S. Supreme Court was the goat in the story, but they don't win hero status, I guess, from a pers pro progressive perspective. Now, this, this story can also work the other way for, uh, you know, we have to generalize in these discussions. Forgive me if the generalizations offend anybody, but there was a property rights case, and I'll associate property rights with a more conservative way of thinking, um, a little more than a decade ago, called Kilo. And that too was a 5-4 decision. And the question was whether the town of New London, Connecticut, could use its eminent domain power to take some middle-class homes and convert them into a headquarters for Pfizer, a, a, big, a big company. Well, this was a, a you know, very significant case at the court. Um, the conservatives fought very hard, thinking, will the terms of the takings clause only allow the government to use eminent domain for a public use? How is it a public use to take over some middle-class homes, tear them down, and let a company move there? Well, the city's perspective was this would bring jobs and help the economy. Hard-fought case, um, and the um, we'll, 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 Justice Stevens, the progressives, will say win the case, the conservatives lose. In the years since Kelo, it would be very difficult for you to find a state that has not responded to the decision and essentially overruled it using state law. So you have several state court decisions that have rejected Kelo in construing their own constitution. You have new constitutional amendments at the state level that prohibit this form of public use. Then you have state legislation that makes it harder to exercise the eminent domain power. So I really could go I probably could give you 40 examples on each side of situations where the U.S. Supreme Court has stayed on the sidelines, decided not to constitutionalize an issue, and state courts using their state constitutions have filled, you know, maybe not filled the gap entirely, but definitely filled some of the gap. And in some cases, I would say, this is one of the points of the story, um, have done more than the U.S. Supreme Court ever could have done. So, like, I'm gonna go back to what I said. Unfortunately, it's neutral. Um, every time you're happy with one thing a state can do, you're going to be unhappy that the state can do it. Um, but sometimes neutral principles aren't a bad idea. I know they're out of vogue, but I, as a judge, I kind of like them. <laughs> What's so amazing about these stories is that we tend to assume that the Supreme Court decision is the end of the matter. But as Judge Sutton has just said, after two of these incredibly controversial decisions, uh, Rodriguez and Kilo, uh, state courts relying on the text of their own constitutions, which in the education case was more precise than that of the U.S. Constitution. Many states guaranteeing a thorough and effective education were able to give the remedy that the U.S. Supreme Court refused to give. So it's a remarkable expansion of our lens to see what happens on the ground after the Supreme Court speaks. You also give some dramatic examples of how the Supreme Court by intervening can stop state experimentation rather than encouraging it. And one of your dramatic examples is one of the most infamous decisions ever decided by the Supreme Court, Buck v. Bell, upholding the mandatory sterilization of so-called imbeciles. Tell us that riveting story. And maybe begin with this question I always struggle with when I teach con law. Where in the US Constitution does it forbid sterilization? It's a kind of tough question. There's, there's no right to privacy written down, and students kind of 
come up with different clauses, but state courts, as you note, before Buck was decided, invoking their state equal protection clauses, had no trouble striking down those laws. So what did those state courts hold, and then what happened with the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah. Yeah, the point of the Buck versus Bell chapter is that if you rely exclusively on the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution as the protector of your rights, you will eventually be disappointed. Um, that is the essential message of that story. So the part of Buck versus Bell, which you remember, or perhaps dimly remember, goes like this. It's about the eugenics story, which is just an, it's, it's not just an ugly chapter in American history, it's just a remarkable chapter that the elite would have been so enthralled by these scientific innovations. But the basic idea in the early 1900s was to use science, I'm not gonna say to perfect people, but to get rid of problems like criminals, prostitutes, uh, so-called imbeciles, so-called feeble-minded individuals, those with mental disabilities and other forms of disabilities. And the idea was to use breeding, um, no less than breeding is used to breed the better racehorses. You would encourage the strong in society to breed and you would stop the not strong, the feeble-minded from breathing. So to make the eugenics movement work, you needed state laws that allowed uh, doctors in the colonies where many individuals with disabilities were kept or people that had been charged and convicted of certain crimes. You needed to give them authority to involuntarily sterilize these men and women. So in the early 1900s, about 15 states passed these sterilization laws. The part of the story you, you know essentially goes to 1927 where the U.S. Supreme Court, in an 8-1 decision, it's, it's just striking, uh, upholds the laws, uh, the upholds these laws against 14th Amendment equal protection and due process challenges. The author of this decision is arguably the greatest justice in U.S. Supreme Court history, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Justice Bra uh, Brandeis, a great progressive, joins the decision. Chief Justice Taft. Uh, a more conservative but a highly regarded justice joins the decision. There's only one dissenter, Justice Butler. Um, he doesn't explain his dissent, so we're, we're left wondering why he dissented. Um, that's the part of the story you know. Buck versus Bell has not been overruled. Um, if you're a lawyer, I wouldn't recommend citing it. Uh, it's <laughs> not gonna get you too far, but uh, it is not one in, when it comes to the verdict of history. Here's the part of that story you probably don't know, and I certainly didn't know until I started looking at this a few years ago. The first wave of state laws, I think the first ones passed in about 1908. So 1908 to 1927 is a long period of time, almost 20 years. There were eight lower court cases before Buck versus Bell. Um, six of them were in the state courts. Of the eight, seven of the eight come out the right way by the verdict of history, which is to say the state and lower federal courts invalidate the state involuntary sterilization laws. The only one that failed was in Washington and the Washington legislature amended the law the next year. So essentially, the state, everything that happens in the state courts works out by the right, in the right way. The best decision is a New Jersey Supreme Court decision. Uh, Smith is the name of it. And uh, Alice Smith was the individual involved. So it's kind of Alice Smith versus Carrie Buck. And Alice Smith, Alice Smith is safe from being sterilized in just a wonderful, thoughtful New Jersey Supreme Court decision that no one knows anything about. Um, we think of the US Supreme Court in, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy people respect federal judges. I'd even like it if you thought of us as heroes. <laughs> but the reality is we're not. 
The reality is that we do make mistakes from time to time. And yet what's really um, frustrating to me is we don't have more people talking about, we have people saying Buck versus Bell was wrongly decided, but we don't have people saying is, by the way, the state courts got this right. Uh, in Justice Holmes' decision, he doesn't even mention the state court decisions. They're construing similar language. Some of them are even construing federal law. And I think this just goes to the fact that we too often think of the state courts not as serious participants in our laboratories of constitutional interpretation. The most distressing part of the story is what happens after 1927. After 1927, after the US Supreme Court has spoken, no more challenges are brought in state court. And let's just make sure we're all on the same page as to how striking that is. After the US Supreme Court interprets the 14th Amendment, it's true, no one could go back to state or federal court and rely on the federal constitution. The US Supreme Court has the final say in what that means. But as I've just explained, seven of the eight challengers before 1927 had won, many of them on state constitutional law grounds. After 1927, the Buck versus Bell decision, another 15 states pass eugenics legislation. And yet no one goes to state court to use the state constitutions to invalidate it. I mean, last year's, I'm gonna um, pander to you a little bit since you're from Philadelphia. Let's just imagine in last year's Villanova, Michigan, NCAA Final Four basketball game, okay? Villanova won and great, good for you. Uh, I prefer the Big Ten, but that's another story. Um, and I know it wasn't a close game, so my hypothetical doesn't quite work. But let's imagine it had been a close game, and let's imagine it had been tied, and a Villanova player had been shot, uh, excuse me, fouled in the act of shooting as time ran out. It's 80-80 for sake of being concrete. The Villanova player gets two chances to win the NCAA basketball tournament. What would you think if he missed the first one and didn't take the second one? That, that's just what happened after Buck versus Bell. I mean, this is confirms something I've always thought, and I'm a former basketball player. I, I, I think American basketball players are smarter than American lawyers uh, <laughs> because it's, it's a math problem, all right? Two are better than one, and yet we Americans, because we're so enthralled with the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution as the sole protector of our liberties, don't even know enough to take the second shot, even when it will win. Um, I'll give you a more recent example, which shows why I have such passion for this. There was a case called Utah versus Streif. Uh, I, I can't tell you the exact date, but it's about five years old. Uh, it's a Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule case. It comes out of Utah. Uh, Mr. Streif, Edward Streif, was prosecuted after a drug bust. Um, he's prosecuted in state court under state law. All criminal cases have to go to state court if you're using state law. He raises a constitutional challenge to the search, but his lawyer chooses only to rely on the Fourth Amendment, the U.S. Constitution's Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. He wins that case at the Utah Supreme Court, which is a moderate to conservative court. Justice Tom Lee is the author of the decision. He's a Trump shortlister. He's a very good, very good judge. He's then reversed at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Thomas writes 
the decision for the majority, Justice Sotomayor writes an anguished dissent. Edward Streif is in jail because his lawyer did not bring a state constitutional claim. It is not too much of a leap to say that a court that rules 5-0 for him on the federal grounds, there wouldn't have been at least three members of that court to also rule for him on state grounds. The US Supreme Court has no authority to reverse a state court decision that relies on state law. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court is the final interpreter of the Pennsylvania Constitution. There's nothing the US Supreme Court can do to reverse one of their decisions when it's solely on state law grounds. And so American basketball players are smarter than American lawyers. <laughs> You mentioned the exclusionary rule, and that's another of your very significant examples. In the MAP case in the 1960s, the Supreme Court held that the US Constitution requires illegally seized evidence to be excluded from criminal trials. But you tell uh, how that was a very uh, bumpy path in the states, which had reached different conclusions before MAP. And you also talk about how after the exclusionary rule was constitutionalized, the Supreme Court watered it down, creating lots of exceptions in ways that may have ultimately filtered down to the states as well. So tell this complicated story of the interaction between state and federal constitutional protections for the exclusionary rule. So there's one part of the MAP exclusionary rule story which is just what I want to happen um, in the future and I'm, I, I applaud it and there's a part of the story that gives me anxiety or at least makes me realize where the federal courts have to be careful. So the part of the story I love is the fact that the exclusionary rule is innovated in the state courts under state constitutions. Eventually, the federal courts adopt an exclusionary rule, but only for federal prosecutions, not for state prosecutions. And it's a long story. It's not one where the US Supreme Court is impatient. It, the, US Supreme, it's the US Supreme Court doing just what I think they should do. Let the evidence come in, the empirical data come in, watch what the state courts are doing, watch what happens in state courts that adopt exclusionary rules, and watch what happens in state courts that don't adopt exclusionary rules. They wait until 1961 to nationalize the exclusionary rule. So in one sense, that's the story I want us to be telling in the future about how our American constitutional rights develop and how we eventually, from time to time, nationalize them at the US Supreme Court. But it's also a cautionary tale, and it's one that I think we can understand today. Um, when the US Supreme Court nationalizes a right, and it's, there's some comp, it's usually associated with two problems. Problem number one is it's not entirely clear that the US Constitution speaks to the issue. So that gets people concerned, is this five justices adopting, using their worldview to interpret the Constitution? That gives us pause when the US Constitution doesn't speak directly to the issue. And the Fourth Amendment is silent about an exclusionary rule. I think good arguments can be made either way but it is silent about it. So this is one where there's a lot of interpretation going on, and I think that hurts the court a little bit. The second thing going on with the exclusionary rule was this is creating a rule for not just 50 states, but thousands of jurisdictions, thousands of police officers, really changing the way criminal law is enforced. I mean, it's really difficult to think of too many criminal cases that don't at some point involve a search. So that's the US Supreme Court really placing a heavy hand on the way criminal law is conducted and enforced in this country. 
The reason that's significant and the reason the second half of the story is complicated is there was resistance to MAP. Now, MAP was not particularly well-reasoned. Justice uh, Kagan, before she went to law school, she took a, she got some fancy scholarship in England and for her master's thesis wrote about MAP and criticized the reasoning of MAP quite cogently. And I, I, I suspect strongly that Justice Kagan is a proponent of the exclusionary rule, but also is a proponent of careful legal reasoning. And perhaps because of the legal reasoning, perhaps because the Constitution doesn't speak directly to it, most certainly because it had such a big impact on law enforcement, there was a real pushback against MAP. What happened? What, what does that mean, a pushback against MAP? MAP was not overruled. How does the US Supreme Court push back on something when it doesn't overrule it? Well, one of the things that happened after MAP is that every time you found a Fourth Amendment violation, it meant you suppressed the evidence. One risk of doing that is it put a lot of pressure on federal and state court judges not to find Fourth Amendment violations. Think about it, you've got a notorious murder in the town and the question is not innocence, the question is the process the defendant is going to be given. Think of the pressure on state and lower federal courts to find that there's not a Fourth Amendment violation. Because if there is a Fourth Amendment violation, the evidence suppressed, the murderer goes free. So what ended up happening is by aligning the remedy of exclusion with the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, you ran the risk of diluting the Fourth Amendment guarantee. That's bad enough by itself. It's even worse in a country that has so much respect for the US Supreme Court. It's, it can often be difficult to get state courts to chart their own path in construing their state constitution. This is the Buck versus Bell problem. And so you have this double whammy where the meaning of the Fourth Amendment seems to be getting diluted or potentially diluted. You have state courts unwilling to continue to construe it in the way they construed it in the past. And you have the real risk of a net loss in criminal procedure protections. So the, the provocative question that comes out of the school funding story is did the plaintiffs win by losing? Did they get more out of state courts than they could have gotten out of the federal court? The provocative question after the MAP exclusionary rule story is did criminal defendants lose by winning MAP? Now I don't know the answer to those questions, but I can tell you it's complicated and it it just shows when we nationalize rights, we just have to be careful what we're doing. And you really wanna make sure that there's a real gap that needs to be filled. An obvious gap that had to be filled was Jim Crow and leading up to Brown. I mean, first of all, remember the Brown story, the US Supreme Court created that problem. It's the US Supreme Court that announced the Plessy decision. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm thrilled to say, uh, Jeff, there's, you, you ought to get him here, he's, he's a lot better than I am. Justice Goodwin Liu on the California Supreme Court. California Supreme Court has some very good justices and Goodwin, Goodwin's absolutely terrific. Former professor at Berkeley. He's writing a review of the book and he's done his own research to show that a bunch of state courts refuse to follow Plessy in construing their own constitution. So we usually think, when we think of Jim Crow, we think states' rights and states as villains. And what Goodwin's showing and what I'm trying to show with my book is 
you're gonna say states' rights at some points in American history, as we should, we should remember to say states' protections at other times in American history. Um, states' protections are good, right? Um, the states' rights side may not be so good. The, uh, I'm reminded of a story, uh, um, President Eisenhower, when he was on the campaign trail, maybe this must have been 56, I'm not sure, but there was some, segrega some segregationist who maybe was trying to win in the primary. But anyway, he was talking about states' rights. It was in the South. And so Eisenhower's asked, well, um, you know, Republican candidate, well, do you believe in states' rights? Do you believe in states' rights? And he says, no, I believe in federalism, <laughs> which is the same thing. <laughs> He was an astute politician. Uh, I would have said states' protections if I were the politician. I wouldn't have said federalism. No, everyone's eyes glaze over when they hear federalism. They say, oh, well, I, I remember learning that term in college. What does that mean? States' protections. They're good when you can get them. Although progressives are now embracing states' rights, and Heather Gerken at Yale talks about states' rights for liberals, but states' protections is even more. I think we've got to get rid of the phrase states' rights. States, yeah. not, not a great phrase. Yeah. It's, it's not about states. It's about people. The whole thing is about people. It's not about governments. We should be very nervous when we're protecting governments or carrying it. That's always a dangerous sign. It's about the people. And if we're going to talk about government leaders, it's people who are government leaders. Well, that's a crucial point, of course, on Constitution Day and on any day. The framers believe that we the people are sovereign and parcel out power among the branches of the federal government and then divide it between the feds and the states in order to preserve our ultimate sovereignty. So the notion of states' rights is an atavism that was rejected at the framing. Look at I'm trying to switch it, so I'm interviewing him. I knew he would get excited about that. No, uh, you got me. So, so the, uh, no, I'm very clever. Uh, I'll, 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 I have one more question, Jeff. Uh, no, no. No. <laughs> I have another no, no, no. couple for you. No, but I do, I do want to, I'm, I'm joking, of course, but maybe we could put this a slightly different way. Um, the most important question, in my view, in American law is the who decides question. That That's... But that, that's not the question we focus on. We focus on the question of what did they decide? Did this branch of government or that branch of government do what we believe in and care deeply about? Now, I, I understand caring deeply about things. I care as deeply about things as anybody here. But I think the most important question in American government is who decides. And sometimes it's not just one. In fact, that is the genius. Um, by allowing so many issues to be decided by more than one branch, we create these double protections, sometimes triple protections. And, and sometimes when who decides, the answer is the US Supreme Court, because they have a right to construe the US Constitution. The next question is, are they the sole interpreter? And sometimes yes, sometimes no. And the sometimes no is when there's a state constitutional guarantee that protects the same right. The U.S. Supreme Court is not the who, the who decides answer in that setting. There are two decision makers, the U.S. Supreme Court and the state court. And, you know, and we haven't even talked about, I mean, is, is his name David Kaplan, I think, who's got this new mm -hmm. book? And he makes the point, I, I say this a little in my book, but I agree with him entirely. We're very focused in our conversation so far of thinking just of judicially enforceable rights. Now, I'm all for judicially enforceable rights, and I think, the American court system is maybe the jewel, certainly one of the jewels of American government. But I don't think it's the exclusive interpreter or the exclusive source of rights. And I'll, I'll illustrate that point by contrasting 
Brown versus Board of Education on the one hand and the 1964 Civil Rights Act on the other. If I could only have one of them, which would I take? And I hate to say it as a judge, I would take the 64 Civil Rights Act. And I'd say that even if we all agreed that Brown was the greatest US Supreme Court decision, why would I say that? Would you rather live in a country where they created a culture in which the majority looked after the minority? That's what the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Or on the other hand, would you rather live in a country where five to nine members of a life-tenured court protect you to your rights? I'm, ha I'm really happy to have that court there as a backstop, but we should always be focusing on state and federal legislative protections. I mean, that is the ideal country to live in, where we as a majority looked after the minority and don't just think of ourselves. I mean, that's why the 64 Civil Rights Act is such a significant event in American history. And if I had to have one of them, I'd take that one. That point is precisely one that Madison made when he said the virtue of a Bill of Rights wouldn't be to allow judges to enforce it, but for its principles to be imbibed into the culture of America so people would bind themselves by them and respect it. And it, you, we were talking about this Atlantic yeah, piece yeah. I have about Madison's idea that we should be governed by reason rather than passion and his effort to slow down the formation of hasty majorities in order to promote reasonable majorities. Is it fair to say that federalism or state protections was one of those cooling mechanisms? It, it, it was, and I mean, this is, this is really provocative. This gets really hard. Um, and I, I, I strongly suspect some of you will disagree with me on this. I think one reason why what you're saying in that Atlantic piece, and you should all read it, as well as his Taft book, as they're both so good. Um, but one reason the stakes are so high in this danger of populism, mob rule, whatever you want to say, however you want to describe it in Madisonian terms, the reason why the stakes are so high right now and we're so concerned is because the federal government has so much power. I mean, that's the, you know, we like it when the US Supreme Court says the Constitution gives the federal government, Congress, power to enact certain things. Um, the downside is every time their power increases, the stakes get higher. And every time their power increases, the stakes get higher, the less we have the balance of power that they were striving for at the outset. I mean, there was no way they were gonna write something 230 years ago or so and have the balance of power be perfectly stable throughout. I mean, it's just not how it's going to work. But we shouldn't lose sight of one of the reasons why we're so anxious about American politics right now, because this Congress really does have remarkable power. Um, and there's not too many things they can't touch. And because there's not too many things they can't touch, the stakes are very high. And if the stakes are very high, people are going to be very impassioned about who is running that federal government. And if you have a world in which we, whether the federal government has the power or not, but if we have a world and a culture in which we remember that we can do a lot of these things at the state level, whether through state courts or state legislation, we really are gonna lower the temperature. And there's something to be said for that. I mean, think about it another way. When we're having our national debates, whether they're national Supreme Court debates or national congressional debates, think what's really going on. Do I, as an Ohioan, have a right to tell you as a Pennsylvanian what to do? That's what's going on. And I think there's sometimes, you should say, Jeff, I don't really care what you think. Um, if you wanna do that in Ohio, go for it. 
but the national rule is not Jeff Sutton's rule. And Montanans have, you know, Montana's a pretty progressive state right now. They're very conservative on a couple issues. And, you know, should they be telling New Jerseyans what should do it? So we, we should be asking ourselves that question. The answer, of course, is yes, sometimes. There are some non-negotiable baseline things that we want protected throughout uniformly. That's, that's an unmitigated good. But there's sometimes where it's kind of fair to say you're just being a busybody. Take care of affairs in your local community first. If that works, take care of them in the state. And then if you really can show it ought to be nationalized, great. But remember what you're really doing when you want it nationalized. You're really telling someone in another state what should happen. And you can do that. But don't be surprised if they respond by saying, yeah, we love the idea of nationalizing. We're going to do the opposite rule. <laughs> and we in New Jersey are going to tell you how to do this in Ohio. So if you're, those are the stakes. And I think the same thing is true with US Supreme Court decisions. I mean, I, I, I challenge you if you, you want to try to figure out the difficult spot we federal judges are in, see if you could ne negotiate this de detente. Um, let me imagine you're a progressive. Find a conservative friend. Um, if you don't have one, work at that first. <laughs> uh, now that the two of you are sitting down over a glass of wine or a beer, let the progressives say, what are the... Um, conservative U.S. Supreme Court decisions I hate the most, the, the top five over the last 40 years. I mean, so maybe a progressive might say Heller or Citizens United, or what, but you get the idea. Now the conservative gets to say, okay, now I'm going to think of the more liberal U.S. Supreme Court decisions over the last 40, 50 years that I like the least. So they pick their handful. Each have five. Would you trade? Would you say the U.S. Supreme Court steps out of all 10 of them and we deal with all of this through democracy and legislation or through state court rulings? In my experience, no one will take that deal. Um, I think there are two things going on. One, out of that 10, there's probably going to be one that you just, it's almost existential for you. You really care about it, so you won't trade it for anything. The other is what I think is fundamentally an American trait. We always think we're right and we're gonna win, which I think that's how we won these world wars and I love that trait, but um, you can't win everything. And um, that's what's going on right now at the US Supreme Court. If you like them nationalizing one right, don't be surprised if they nationalize one you don't care for. Um, and, but try that trade, see if you can negotiate it. And uh, let me know if it works out, I'm happy to propose something. <laughs> It's an incredibly empowering message in an age when, because of geographic and virtual uh, self-segregation, uh, we're living in red and blue America, which has little chance of convincing each other. You're telling us we don't have to. We can turn to our state courts so that every laboratory of democracy can rule. You mentioned the Montana. And let's talk about Citizens United. When Citizens United came down, Montana dealt with a serious campaign finance restriction. And it was challenged under the First Amendment, and the Montana justices tried to say Citizens United didn't cover the case, and that didn't persuade the justices. Should they have invoked the Montana Constitution, and might have things come out differently if they had? Yeah, so I, I was saying earlier that I'd like us to think about our 51 constitutions as labs of constitutional interpretation where it's helpful to everybody, originalists, pragmatists, living constitutionalists, to have a lot of data points about how to construe 
very general terms like free speech, due process, equal protection. So when the, Mont the Montana Supreme Court did not care for Citizens United, and the reason Montanans cared deeply about that decision is they had a history that really showed some of the dangers of corporate influence with the legislature. Uh, you might know the history of the copper barons, and for a long period of time, it was fair to say that the Montana legislature was controlled by the copper companies. And that had disfiguring effects for politics, and it had truly disfiguring effects for the environment, the land of Montana. So when the Montana Supreme Court gets a challenge uh, to one of its campaign finance laws, corporate finance laws, uh, they were not excited about applying Citizens United. And as Jeff pointed out, they essentially said Citizens United doesn't apply in Montana. Well, that was unfortunate. Um, we have something called the Supremacy Clause and Citizens United applies everywhere. And that's the way it works. If the US Supreme Court announces a decision, we have to respect it. In fact, the Supremacy Clause, word by word, refers to state court judges who have to, they have to obey uh, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. So what could the Montana Supreme Court have done instead? Well, they should have in one sentence said, we abide by Citizens United and realize that it invalidates this particular law. That's one sentence. And then they could have said, next paragraph, next sentence, but there are two constitutions that regulate Montanans. The Montana Constitution also has a free speech clause. And in Montana, given our history, the free speech clause covers speech and not money. Why would that have been productive? In one sense, it would have been a fool's errand because the law would still have been struck because you had to rely on the, you only have to strike a law once so the federal constitution would have invalidated the law. But what would have been productive of, uh, had they done what I'm suggesting is it would have taken us back to the Brandeisian labs of constitutional interpretation. They would have created a data point of a state Supreme Court, a state highest court, looking at similar language about free speech and explained presumably in a lucid way why a free speech clause doesn't restrict limitations on spending money in a political campaign. That data point would have been available to other like-minded state courts. I think this decision is about 10 years old. By now, I suspect you would have had you know, several other state courts saying the same thing. Now, in one sense, it's a symbolic point because as long as you raise the federal constitution, you're still gonna be able to invalidate these laws. But if your goal is to change Citizens United, change the way the US Supreme Court has interpreted it, these data points are very valuable, right? A living constitutionalist would say, look at what these state courts are telling us in response to Citizens United. They're saying, we, we reject that, we disagree. A pragmatist would be able to look at this data and say, well, it doesn't seem like a cost-benefit decision that all the other state courts are agreeing with. And if it happened to be an originalist state court decision, then like-minded originalists on the US Supreme Court could look at that decision and say, I'm not sure I buy the originalist analysis. I don't think there's anything from 1791 that suggests free speech covered money as opposed to speech. Now, I'm not advocating an approach because, as I said, I'm trying to talk about something that everybody can use, but that would have been a much more productive approach. And I think it can, the fact that they didn't do it is not a blemish on the Montana Supreme Court, it's a blemish on us. We just don't think about it this way, and we need to start thinking about it this way.
you see what an extraordinarily productive uh, call this is for uh, informing constitutional interpretation. The judge just laid out three different modes of constitutional call me interpretation. Jeff. No, Jeff, no judge. Uh, yeah. uh, fellow <laughs> Jeff uh, has just laid out uh, three modes, pragmatism, living constitutionalism, and originalism, and said that these state court decisions could ultimately persuade the Supreme Court, just as Justice Scalia in interpreting the Eighth Amendment did look to state constitutions as evidence of what might constitute cruel and unusual punishment uh, uh, th today. That, that happens with cruel and unusual punishment. Think of the gay marriage story. Um, Obergefell, in Justice Kennedy's majority opinion, he relies on his key, the key decision is Goodrich, the decision from the Massachusetts highest court, but then he relies on several other state court decisions as evidence of shifting societal norms. So it's, it's a really important data point. It's a really productive thing for state courts to be doing. And it happens to be very good for the US Supreme Court. And it's hard to find something that you can say this about. It's very good for every method of interpretation. I don't care whether you're an originalist, living constitutionalist, or pragmatist, or a bit of all three. This will be very helpful to you uh, when trying to figure out what the US Supreme Court should be doing, or rethink doing. Here's a hypothetical, and it may well be a, a hypothetical. Um, imagine Roe v. Wade is overturned. Now, as it happens, uh, in, in, interestingly, there was a, a vote at a recent Federalist Society conference, that's the Conservative Lawyers Group, will Roe be overturned? Strong majority said they don't think it will be overturned, and it might not be, but imagine it is. It would go back to the states. Already, progressives are mobilizing to make arguments that state constitutions protect a right to choose, either uh, through a right to privacy or as a protection of women's equality. Uh, that sounds like it's just in line with the sort of thing that you're advocating. They should do that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, Roe is the opposite of Glucksburg. I mean, Glucksburg is a U.S. Supreme Court decision where they, in a decision by Justice Scalia, an originalist, they said there is no um, constitutionally protected right to die. All right, so they rejected that claim, and I think it was a 5-4 decision, very close. Um, if, if this hypothetical happened, whether likely or not, that would be on the other side. But both are issues where the state courts can chart their own path. In fact, since Glucksburg, many state courts have found a constitutional right to end life on your own terms. Um, some by legislation, some by state court decisions. And the same thing could happen with really any of these rights. Um, again, let's not lose sight of legislative approaches, which are really nice because they, they bring everybody into the mix, whereas judicial decisions by definition are a much smaller body of people and usually a less accountable body of people. Another exciting thing that you remind us is that state constitutions, unlike the federal constitution, sometimes protect positive rights, rights to healthcare or an equal education and so forth. Tell us about how the text of these constitutions allows judges plausibly to uh, recognize rights that the U.S. Constitution might not clearly protect. Yeah, so there, so when we have the U.S. Constitution is negative. It says, thou shalt not. It's kind of got an Old Testament thing. Thou shalt not, <laughs> thou shalt not. Um, but many state constitutions place affirmative duties on the state legislature. So school funding, they have an affirmative duty to create a thorough and efficient system of public schools. If they don't do it, you'd have a challenge. I learned about this, and there are quite a few environmental protections in the state constitutions, and I learned about this in a backward way because I heard that the New York Constitution restricted the width of ski trails. Um, and I thought, boy, that really diminishes 
the significance of a, a state constitution. I mean, do New Yorkers really care about skiing that much that they are put in their constitution how wide ski trails are? I mean, I don't even think of them as being very good skiers. Uh, but anyway, I, I was thinking- We're we just fine. <laughs> the problem is there's not any snow in New yeah, York. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I just, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought that's where you go for that protection in the state constitution. And then I learned that it's actually a very sound provision. Here's why. In the Teddy Roosevelt era, the New York Constitution decided to put in its constitution that certain state forests were state protected and the protections were in the New York Constitution itself. Now that's actually a wonderful way to use a constitution. We don't happen, happen to do that in the US, but I think that's a wonderful model and it creates these obligations to protect and preserve them and pro you, know, you can't have any private development on them and so forth. And so as a result, um, a lot of these are in the Adirondacks. And as you know, there's Lake Placid and a few other ski areas. They realized, well, fine, these are state protected forests, but we don't think it's a terrible idea to have skiing because why, if you ski, you might appreciate the environment. And that's one reason people ski. So, okay, fine, we'll let, the ski, we'll let you have the ski slope, but then we're gonna restrict how long the runs are and how wide the trails are so we don't take down too many trees. So there's actually a very good justification for the width of ski trails provision in the New York Constitution. I, I'm gonna doubt you have one in Pennsylvania, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Skiing here is pretty grim. Unfortunately, uh, it's <laughs> worth, worth trying, but yeah. <laughs> um, one last question and then some final thoughts uh, from you. Many of these state constitutional provisions came from state constitutional conventions, but we seem to be having fewer of them, of them nowadays and you were telling me earlier about how that has to do with an increasing focus on single issue politics and the inability of folks to compromise. Yeah, I think in American history, there have been roughly, well, there's only been one US Constitutional Convention. I think if you've wandered around here for a little while, you, you've got that. Um, we have, we've had some amendments, but never through a convention. So there's only one convention. There've been about 300 state conventions. And in American history, they've been really productive in the Jacksonian era, the post-Reconstruction era, a lot of really healthy ideas came out of them. Um, but they really shut down in the 70s, I think early 80s was the last state constitutional convention, which to me is quite unfortunate. And I, when I ask people in Ohio why that's the case, they, they really say it's a single issue voter problem, that the, the fear is that if you brought people together, um, everything would be on the table and you'd have sufficiently strong constituencies that cared deeply about this or that issue that you really wouldn't be able to get compromise, even though, to use the Ohio Constitution, there's lots of really silly provisions that are dated, time has passed them by, and they ought to be removed, and it wouldn't be heavy lifting to do it. But the fear is that the single-issue voter with our interest groups would dominate the conversation and really undermine the efforts to either clean it up or add some productive new provisions. So it's really, it's a sad commentary. I mean, it's almost 40 years now since we've had one and we used to have them all the time. You know, you have 50 options. You'd think you'd be having one a year. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't speak well of us as a country. Uh, you have inspired me, as I hope you've inspired our audience, to recognize the tremendous significance of state constitutions in our polarized age. And I'm looking forward to talking with you and others about ways of bringing these state constitutions online so that people can study them and learn from them and use them to uh, promote the states as laboratories of democracy. But I want to end. It's Constitution Day, and it's really important that you convey the urgency of this message 
So just let's close by telling our great audience why it is so important for them and for all Americans to learn about and care about and invoke state constitution. Yeah, well, um, they were there at the founding um, and uh, we ought to respect that. Um, by the way, every time you see Jeff, just ask him as you're wandering around. I mean, the online project is great. I'm really supportive of that. But ask him, where's the section on state constitutions? Uh, all right, so just keep saying that to him. <laughs> and, uh, and then please give money for the, exhi yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> for the I, exhibit that Jeff wants us to create. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm an idea guy. I'm not a fundraiser, but I like the ideas. But um, it all fits together. It's American constitutional law. If, if there's one thing, one message, it's a who decides. Sometimes there's more than one decision maker, and we need to think about it as Americans as American constitutional law, which is a federal side and a 50-state side. We're asking an awful lot of the U.S. Supreme Court right now when it comes to rights recognition. I understand it. Um, I understand why people care so deeply about the confirmation process. We seem to be electing presidents solely to fill one seat on a nine-member court. That's not what we fought the revolution for. It's not why we had the Civil War. It's, it's really not what this country is about. So I'm not, I'm not delusional. We Americans are still gonna want the US Supreme Court to enforce nationally certain rights that we care deeply about. All I'm asking us to do is think a little bit more about using the states as laboratories of interpretation and maybe having a little more patience before we nationalize. Because if you have patience before you nationalize, you lower the stakes. And when you lower the stakes, you lower the risk that there's going to be a counter a response. And these, these responses to court decisions are not always healthy for American democracy. So there's a great way to do this, and that's look to your state courts and your state constitutions and hope people will think a little bit more about that in the future for having transformed our understanding of federal constitutional law and for increasing awareness and understanding of the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Please join me in thanking Judge Jeffrey Sutton. This show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Tanea Talbert and Jackie McDermott. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Google or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us wherever you listen. And if you like Live at America's Town Hall, check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.